I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Deitch. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, one excellent conversation, both from the same place. Actually, uh, very excited to do this. Austin Karp, longtime guest on this podcast, senior managing editor slash digital for Sports Business Journal. He's joined by Ben Fisher, who covers the NFL for SBJ, does a great job. He's their uh, lead um, NFL person. And uh, we had a great discussion on what we're all focused on as the NFL passes its uh, midseason point uh, and sort of the different areas uh, from viewership to business. Talk about the NFL in Europe. Uh, And Ben had some fascinating thoughts on this and how Germany is really emerging as a great place for the NFL when it comes to perhaps a potential franchise there. Got into YouTube and uh, less buffering issues this week, at least on social media. Nobody complaining. Huge week for them. We had a long talk about the World Series and its uh, record low average. Um, Austin gets really deep into that. A little bit on Colorado football. And uh, we end with Bob, the, how we saw the coverage of uh, the passing of Bob Knight, at least in media terms. So uh, if you like sports uh, media stuff, uh, this will be a good one for you. Austin Carp and Ben Fisher coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, very excited to have uh, Austin Carp, a regular on this podcast, senior managing editor slash digital for Sports Business Daily, and someone making a first-time appearance, Ben Fisher. He covers the NFL for Sports Business Journal. You have read his work. If um, you are uh, someone who is into um, sort of the business of the NFL, how the NFL does its operations, uh, he does an excellent job, and um, his stuff is always interesting to me. So Austin and Ben, welcome. I, I mean, I feel like I should invite Oran and Abe and uh, just and have a conference or something. This is like no, no, we're keeping this to do it. This is the sports business version of Shake and Bake. It is. By the way, Ben, let me start with this. I, I was reading. You guys have a million newsletters that come out, so I, I forget actually where I was reading it. But in a newsletter in the last like couple of days, Austin Carp was a bold faced name for being at a like a post SBG SBJ conference. So he's getting like the New York Post treatment, like, you know, like, uh, you know, Michelle Williams was spotted at this Brooklyn bar. Austin was getting that kind of treatment in SBJ. Pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, Austin's moving up in the world. Um, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be on your show. Longtime listener. But uh, I know Austin's a regular and he's kind of a big deal these days, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure to- my kids listen to this one. Yeah. Please do. He's about to. Yeah. He's about to jump in the pool with Ron Burgundy. All right. Here we go. All right, uh, Ben, I want to start with you. We have uh, just passed the mid-season point of the National Football League. Um, I imagine Austin will probably, when I ask him this question, focus on viewership. But for you, you know, you've done a lot of stories, whether it's, um, you know, sort of, and I want to get to this, the NFL in Germany, uh, read your interesting piece sort of about YouTube and their buffering issues. But what what NFL stories are you going to be focused on 
as we head towards the postseason and inevitably to one of the most interesting Super Bowls, at least in my opinion, a Super Bowl in Las Vegas. Right. Well, I mean, I think the question actually answers itself to a certain extent is that for the first time in a while, there's there's not really one obvious overarching story in the NFL. When they finally got Dan Snyder out, that changed a lot of the tenor around the the meetings I'm I'm paying closest attention to. Um, so, you know, continued uh, watching YouTube for its performance in the first season of Sunday Ticket, see if they can actually get any traction in um you know, fundamentally expanding the uh, user base for Sunday Ticket. I think that's that's the big question. Is that Morgan Stanley research report put out that they don't need to just have a few more subscribers than the Direct TV did. They need to have many, many more subscribers than Direct TV. And you know, it's a long term project. But I think so far, I don't know if we've seen that. Um, and you know, like we, once again, we've got bad teams in the biggest cities in the country, which you know keeps the NFL as, as great as it does from a business standpoint. It it keeps things from going truly as well as they'd like. And uh, you know, the internationalization, the international push, it's becoming clear that that's going to be you know a big part of Roger Goodell's next term as commissioner is trying to make this happen. And I think they've been. Um, They've been dabbling abroad for going on a couple of decades now. I think that dabbling is quickly turning into a, a serious strategic imperative, and that means a lot when the NFL puts its full resources behind it. We're gonna we're, we're gonna sort of talk about that as a specific topic, the NFL abroad. But Austin, to you, um, and if you want to focus on you know one of your areas of expertise, viewership, feel free. I think if you're in the NFL right now, I think you have to really, really feel good about those viewership numbers. And then in particular, Fox in particular, late in the year really backloaded its schedule. And so as long as the Cowboys um, and some of the other teams that were expected to do well, do well, NFL's probably looking at an increase, at least if I'm going to extrapolate to the end of the year. So what are you paying attention to second half? Yeah, I think the NFL is extremely happy with where those numbers sit. Um, I, don't, I think even coming out of this Eagles-Cowboys game this past weekend, the da- Dallas did nothing to show that it's it doesn't deserve to be in one of those primetime TV slots the rest of the season. And I think that number, that game is going to do really well for them. Is it going to top the $27.5 million or so that the NFL kickoff game got? I don't know if it's going to get to that level, but I think it's going to get close. I think it'll definitely be in the top four for this season to date. But, you know, the league through week eight, around 17.3 million viewers. That's up 6%. It's the best figure for the league through week eight since around 2015. Anytime you can reach back further, you know, you know, pre-2018, 2019, when you're talking about superlatives, I find it to be incredibly impressive. So like you said, with combine that with a backloaded schedule for Fox there, I think things are really looking good for NFL and its media partners. Uh, so let me follow up with that. What, you know, my initial thought would be, the, you know, you have to factor in out-of-home viewership in terms of why the league would be up in 2023 over, um, over the last couple of years. But in your opinion, do you think it's do you think it's more? Is it that um, some of the really uh, renowned viewership teams like Dallas are in contention? Is it because of um, the NFL doing some really smart things, let's say, with their programming, making making sure certain teams are at a four twenty five p.m. window? Why do you think Why do you think they're up six percent? Let's say as opposed to being flat. Well, I, I, you cannot ignore the out-of-home figure. I will absolutely give that some credit, factoring that in, and giving the NFL in particular its due credit on organizing groups like that, on, on, on having bars and restaurants packed every Sunday, all Sunday, and giving the, the due credit there, that's fine. 
but I still think it is incredibly impressive in what they've done with cross, you know, cross flex and scheduling and really maximizing the best possible game for that 425 window, adding flex to all their primetime packages. We haven't even really begun to see that, you know, Sunday night has had, but we haven't really seen it for Monday night. We haven't seen it yet for Thursday night. So you're really going to see late in the schedule, better games there. And they haven't even really hit their full potential. The New York teams are not great. I mean, you look at the Giants-Raiders game yesterday. It's like, which team fired their whole front office and head coach this past week? Uh, so there's a lot of work to do with the Giants. The Bears, if they could ever actually figure it out, are just could be a dynamo in terms of driving ratings numbers. And they just haven't ever delivered not since I've been writing about ratings. So I think there is even room to grow among some of these bigger markets. It's something Ben and I talk about all the time. Uh, I, so, Ben, I want to talk about um, YouTube uh, before we get to some World Series talk. Um, you know, I wrote, you You had a YouTube executive on stage at a recent conference who said, and you can um, – you can ID the person you spoke to. I just I sort of forget the executive at the moment. But they basically were saying like, you know, the the issues were a one time deal and they're gonna be mitigated and we're gonna have a good weekend. From basically at least social media, from what I saw, um, there were no issues or very, very limited issues. There weren't like um there wasn't the outrage that we saw from a couple weeks ago when people had uh uh buffering and and, and other stuff. Um and so I, I find sort of this really, really fascinating because I think to me, the most important thing that they have to do year one is sort of like, you know, it's a little cliche, but proof of concept. It's basically to let their customers know that this is going to be a great experience for them. And then I think eventually with like multi-view and stuff like that, they'll figure that all out. But it, it's just like Amazon, like the product has to work. It has to feel like linear television and i felt like if they would get one mulligan which was last week but this week it seemed like things returned and so from your perspective as somebody who's written about youtube a lot and and is going to be living with youtube for the next you know seven years or so um how'd you see them this week in relation to sort of the larger um um the larger plan that they have for for bringing more subscribers in yeah i, mean, I think first of all your uh your interpretation of this week is accurate i didn't see any evidence of any sort of problems that scale with uh with youtube product in week geez whatever week we're in was that just week eight we just had um yeah certainly better than the week week before. nine i think but yeah week nine, yeah right right week nine geez um no week nine was a good recovery from week eight and i think your instincts are right the mulligan i mean people are pretty familiar with streams not always being great um, but you know, as long as it's generally reliable, I think that storyline goes away pretty quickly. Um, and, and you know, it's a, it's a bit of a tough thing from a, from a communications narrative perspective because it almost isn't a story unless it goes badly. And I think in some ways, the biggest story about Amazon picking up the first uh, major package of exclusive streaming NFL action is the total lack of a story around reliability on Amazon. So, like that's that's extraordinary kudos to them and with one notable exception that's been similar for YouTube and Google. And, you know, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's frustrating for the PR folks there, but you know, I mean, you're multi-trillion dollar companies and people are paying top dollar for the, for Amazon prime and, and the Sunday ticket subscription, it better be perfect. Um, so, I mean, I think YouTube has done pretty well in that regard so far this season. I still think there are broader questions about, you know, the use case for Sunday ticket. 
Um, surely more people are able to get it than they used to be able to get it. I mean, I live in an apartment complex in New York. Uh, you know, I was not even eligible to get a satellite package. Um, so direct TV or Sunday ticket was not a part of my life. Now I can, I, I think there's a lot of people like me. So there's a larger addressable market. I think we're going to continue to see innovation with the customization with uh, the multi views and ways you can personalize the product and that'll help. Um, last week on stage, Lori Conkling is the woman who uh, promised problems were fixed. Um, you know, she talked about YouTube's creators um, driving NFL interest. And that's something we haven't seen much of so far. But YouTube's got all of these content creators who often have uh, fan bases that are very young, very different from NFL folks and your traditional NFL fans. And she says that, you know, a big part of the plan is to get them involved to drive interest in the NFL. So, uh, you know, Dude Perfects is one of them. They're doing the Amazon thing. But there's a whole universe of people that YouTube pays that, that could be part of that along the lines of the Toy Story and the Nickelodeon experiments the NFL has been doing. I'm still a skeptic that they're going to get that many more people to buy it. But that's sort of a separate conversation. Yeah, I'm a skeptic, too, on that, although I think it's an interesting business proposal. I I. I don't know if I see the uh, um, the I don't know if I see YouTube creators as a catalyst to get their fan bases interested in the NFL. My one caveat though would be there's a massive amount of people who follow YouTube influencers, and so you know you are dealing with so many numbers, and you know if you can turn a little bit of that percentage into NFL people. Um, you know, you could sort of see the logic on that. I just, I don't know if they can catalyst to the point where like, okay, you know, my favorite YouTube influencer is saying this and talking about the NFL and now I'm going to pony down, you know, a couple hundred bucks on, um, on Sunday ticket. The other thing, Ben, that was interesting to me that, um, I want to get to before we move to the world series was, um, I'm sure you saw the Morgan Stanley report that came out and basically their projections are that like YouTube's going to lose a, uh, you know, YouTube slash Google slash Alphabet's going to lose a ton on this deal. But then again, it also may not matter. It may just be a loss leader as a way to get um, sort of more exposure and more business for for everything else. But I did. I was curious if you had seen that report. I imagine you definitely had, and what you thought. I, again, I know a couple billion dollars is like uh, uh, in terms of a loss for Alphabet is like me, you, and Austin like losing money for a nice coffee or something like that. But but the numbers are still pretty big at least when you're reading them on the page oh for sure and by the way shout out to morgan stanley for publishing that research report literally days before i had a panel with the nfl and youtube about sunday ticket it got me two-thirds of the conversation um, just from that one report so appreciate the timing there research team and morgan stanley um and you're right a two billion dollars is not the same when it's google's money um i think at the end of the day if in at the end of this contract you know youtube tv is seen in the market as the obvious place to go if you need some replacement for cable that is also strong in live sports, then they'll consider that money well spent. Um, it's hard to see that, you know, I mean, in our perspective to see that this is something that's going to lose in excess of a billion dollars for like six more years. Um, but, you know, Google has very different motivations than everyone else we've always written about in this industry. So I, who am I to say it's not going to work? But I think that just underscores, you know, the scale that this has to get bigger at. And, you know, I think that gets into the broader questions about the value proposition of Sunday Ticket. Um, but, you know, they, they, I think they are aware that it, it does. They have to it has to be a game changing product. It can't just be marginally better than Sunday Ticket was on DirecTV. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I guess on that. Uh, and, and by the, if I can elaborate a little on yeah. what I mean by this this uh, strategic challenge that I'm sort of a skeptic on, um, I think yesterday's slate of football was a really good example of what I mean by this. Is I I I, I asked about this on stage last week that I think the value of Sunday ticket is something that is a bit of a wasting asset because look at look at this week week nine as you correctly said Thursday night Steelers play on prime. That's one of your national teams drives ratings. Then you've got uh, chiefs and dolphins, a big time game. It's not part of Sunday ticket. Cause that's been moved to a, a Germany spot to pursue right. that NFL strategy. network. Yep. That's nine 30 on NFL network chiefs or um, um, Eagles, Cowboys, big time ratings, heavy hitters in the national slot at one at four 30. And then Sunday night is bills, Bengals, which aren't major markets, but are major, major teams from a fan base perspective. And then tonight, you've got an L.A. team versus a New York team, which left the Sunday at one slate pretty lacking. I mean, CBS had Nance and Romo on Seahawks Ravens. I know. I noticed that, too. Competitive and a game that feels like a second or third broadcast team. So I guess my point is every new international game that's at 930 on the NFL Network or every new window, the Monday night doubleheaders, all of that is like these gradual marginal uh, degradations of the Sunday afternoon slates, which may well serve many NFL strategic purposes, but undermines the reason why I would ever go buy Sunday ticket. It's, it's a premium product. And if I'm a Cowboys fan, they're on national TV enough that I don't really need Sunday ticket. If I'm a Cowboys fan in New York, they're on more often than not. It's a really interesting point um, that you made. And it sort of shows once again, the NFL's, inherent genius in getting people to pay for you know what is in some ways a premium product but in other ways not because of the um because of sort of how you just spelled it out and the reality is the the significant and Austin, if you want to weigh in here you certainly can because you've been patiently quiet um the the reality is ben just said austin is that like the cowboys are always going to be in many ways a non-sunday ticket team i would say when the packers are good they're going to be a non-Sunday ticket team because obviously they'll get placed in certain windows. You know, as long as like the Chiefs and the Bills have been good, they're limited. That said, the this is where the NFL sort of has you. People are such diehard fans of their teams in the NFL, and the league has just got such broad appeal that I do think for some fans, like just to get those six, let's I'll just make this up. I'll use a random number, just to get those six or seven games or five games that are in the afternoon window, if you are a fan of even one of these famous teams, you're probably going to pony the money. Because it, unlike whether it's baseball or basketball, some of these other sports, NFL fans will not, they, like, they they will not miss a game. And that's where the NFL has you. And that's where the yeah, limited the muscle inventory. memory is there. The muscle yeah, memory is And that's is where the limited there. inventory plays too, because it's only an 18-game season versus, uh, um, you know, 81 in, in some of these other sports. And I feel I still think it's honestly I think there's still plenty of games to keep you occupied and to keep keep, keep you keeping track of your fantasy team during those one o'clock games. And you know from what I've seen, I haven't seen big slippage uh, per, per se in the regional and the single header numbers. I think they're still doing well. But like Ben said, when you're even if you're putting a really strong matchup like Dolphins Chiefs at, at the 9:30 window on NFL Network. The max that I mean, the best that any NFL Network London game has done like that is like five and a half million. You're, you're tripling that for the worst of your, uh, you know, single header regional window. So I, I'm not. I don't think it's going to impact too much though. But I, you do. I think you do want to see 
those big games continue to be in the big windows. You're going to see Cowboys in the big windows, but I don't think it's going to hurt the Sunday ticket package that much. Yeah, and there were some early Sunday. By the way, I should say 17 game season. My bad, not 18, obviously. Um, and there, you know, there, there, I think I'm correct about this. There were, there were. I know there was at least a couple of Cowboy games in the early window. But again, if you're also now. You know the reverse is if you're a team of like I don't know the Bucks or your 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 favorite team is uh, I was trying to think of somebody sort of who's you know the, the Seahawks or whatever like you know you Sunday ticket does mean something to you because you're still going to have the yeah. majority of your games uh, majority of games on there. All right, um, Ben, we will get to the NFL International because that's something really interesting to me. But before that, Austin, I want to get to the World Series. Um, man, there has been so much discussion and so much written about uh, the viewership numbers of the World Series. And I understand, again, that these are simply numbers for the final of this sport. Where the sport is sort of larger is a whole different conversation that certainly involves some of the issues with RSNs. But baseball is also incredibly healthy in many ways as well when you look at stadium attendance um, and the you know the interest of the sport. But in this particular case, we're going to talk about the World Series – and you can't spin these numbers. They were brutal. World Series finished nine point with a average of nine point one million viewers. That was down, I think, from the previous low, which is nine point eight million. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Austin. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of this clearly was matchup driven, market driven. You can make the argument that the series probably got a little bit of bad luck because it started on a very low low television day. I think it started on a Friday. And it didn't go long. It ended pretty quick. But Austin, you know, baseball now sort of facing the same exact challenges the the NBA is facing. You know, once upon a time, you know, when we were young, the three of us were young, these World Series were drawn 23, 24, 25 million viewers, you know, with a blink of an eye. Today, last week, we saw 9.1 million viewers. What do you make of this? Well, I know I don't think baseball is dying. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't think it's not a chicken little situation. This, but is this was a confluence like you referenced of a lot of things that just did not fall baseball's way. These are not teams with any players you really recognized. It was there. You know, they made the call to start on a Friday and Saturday night, which traditionally are the least watched days of the week. Um, yeah, you're not going up against the NFL, but you still got college football, and people are just generally are watching less TV on a Friday or Saturday night. They're going out. They're doing other things. It's the weekend. So you you, you combine that with, yeah, just two traditionally not-watched teams in Arizona and there in Texas, which did pretty well locally during the regular season. I mean, the Rangers led locally all teams in gains on their RSN. They were up 100%. No team did better, and the D-backs were in the top 10. So – you know, yes, baseball and basketball and hockey could need to figure out the overall regional situation, but there's still such strong interest locally for baseball. It's like, okay, how, how do we harness this? How do we come, how do we get all this? Create new faces for baseball, new new faces that people can identify with stars. They need star power like the NBA has. They just haven't been able to do it. Mike Trout never wanted to do it. It's tough to do it with Shohei Otani. How can they do that? How can they get faces so that you know who these guys are in October on Fox? What about you? I know it's not uh, your, um, you know, the area that you cover on a daily basis, Ben, but, you know, you've written about viewership when it comes to the NFL and you're paying attention to all this stuff just given where you work. Uh, how did you see baseball's uh, viewership numbers this year for the World Series? 
you know, I guess I, I don't. I guess I'm a bit of a bit of a skeptic on the star-driven theory here. I, I I don't think the problem with the Rangers and the Diamondbacks were that they didn't have famous players. I think the problem is they just have team brands that don't resonate nationally for one reason or another. Diamondbacks still kind of a new team. Um, you know, just can't believe I'm saying that they were they expanded when I was ten, I think. But you know, in the grand scheme of baseball, that's that's new. The Rangers, it's strange to say, it's not like they've been a, a bad team, a la like pre-World Series winning Cubs. Like this is decades and like legacy of losing, but they've just not been in the mix. Um, these are teams that have never really rated on the national stage for any length of time. And I think it's more about the brand of the team than the presence of stars or not. And, you know, I don't pay attention to baseball, anything like I used to in Fairness to Major League Baseball, I think that's more because of the Pittsburgh Pirates than it is the sport itself. Um, that's my entry point, and I could not be more cynical about that organization. Um, <laughs> but if the Red Sox were on, I'd probably it resonate for me more because that's like an old brand, you know. I mean, I think that's like the Orioles is just like an old brand, you know. It's 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 it stands for something in people's minds. I mean, the Texas Rangers, and here's some East Coast bias, I guess, but the Rangers and Diamondbacks just sort of like blank slates to me a little bit like there wasn't talk any at at all during the season about oh look at the look at this young up-and-coming squad that the d-backs or the rangers have there was talk around that around the orioles so i think you would have preferred the orioles to to the rangers in this situation i can't believe i'm saying that with dallas being the fifth biggest market in the country but i think that would have been the better situation for baseball yeah i mean you know philly phillies in the world series would have been interesting as well um but um yeah again the the thing about all this stuff, you know, Austin, whether it's, uh, you know, Rangers Diamondbacks or, you know, pick your NBA finals, it could, you know, if you get the right teams the following year, the viewership increases can be massive. So if for some reason, like it's Yankees, I don't know, Giants just making this up next year, you know, your you're, Fox is guaranteed probably 14, 15 million viewers at the jump. And so, you know, then you have a great story to tell. In terms of uh, increases, but yeah, listen, man, I, I actually sort of uh, was having some fun with Fox Sports PR because I, I think at a certain point they maybe didn't even put a ratings release out for Game Four. I mean, at a certain point, you just can't spin. Oh, it was pretty quiet on that yeah. front, and it is what I it think is. You're right. and, it's uh, it's going to take the Yankees. It'll take the Yankees returning for them to get back above 14 million. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm just throwing like that arbitrary play. number out. But like, I mean, let's just say, let's say next year it's uh, uh, just make up, right? Red Sox Cubs. Or or Yankees Giants or uh, Dodgers um, Orioles that that you know you're getting you're going to get double digit viewership no matter what yeah. for every every team I just mentioned and what you're reeling off is pretty much the schedule of Sunday night baseball that they like to roll out there in the court <laughs> that's of the right. season you're not going to get Rangers D- you were never you were never going to get coming up to this World Series Rangers D backs on Sunday night baseball it's just not a matchup that any schedule was drawing up. I would love to see Otani go to big market. I know, you know, I'm from a big market, so I, I don't want to get the bias sort of accused. Of. I just think it would be great. I think it'd be great for the sport. I think it'd be cool to see him in like, you know, a city that, uh, you know, really matters when it comes to baseball and it's late, and, you know, and this guy who's really like a uh, a magnetic figure, uh, you know, has meaningful at bats. Um, you know, we'll see. Um, we'll see what he ends up. Uh, well, Richard, uh, you know, I, I, I I mean, that's a good entry point into maybe a bit of a contrarian take on this conversation. Sure. Um, you know, if if the goal is 
total number of viewers in the World Series, then yeah, you want the big markets. You want you want Otani at a big market. But to me personally, as somebody who's got a little bit of arm's length away from baseball, not covering it, not following it like I used to, baseball's bigger strategic problem is not viewership. It's a sense that two-thirds of the teams aren't even competing for a World Series every year. Right, I agree. And I think the fact that the Rangers and the Diamondbacks won their divisions – Despite being a step below the serious spending teams, or one that won their one their leagues, uh, despite being a step below the serious spenders, is a good thing because that's going to take owners like Bob Nutting in Pittsburgh, for instance. Uh, maybe he decides that oh, it is possible to win a World Series. I'm actually going to put my best team out on the field next year and spend a little money. I think there are more baseball fans concerned about the power of consolidating among Cubs, Mets, Yankees. Dodgers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's maybe a bigger problem for the sport long-term big picture than a down year. So maybe it's a good thing that the non-intuitive teams were in the World Series this year. Although Texas, you know, to their credit, they spent a ton on uh, Mark Simeon and Corey Seager and then obviously really added at the the deadline. So that owner has paid. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a very clear bend sort of have and have nots. Um, a lot of that obviously is impacted, I think, by the RSNs in terms of you know, for some of these teams, like the cable money was their payroll. But yeah, no sport I think can really be over the top healthy if you're only looking at like, you know, 10 to 12 teams that have the financial resources to compete every year. And then everybody else has to almost play some kind of money ball version to try to get. Right. And to be clear, it's, it's a little bit of a perception game. I mean, there are clearly teams that consistently win without spending what Steve Cohen. Yeah. The, the Tampa Bay Rays are right. the patron saints of that. But there's more than a few teams that are perceived as not even attempting to try. Yes. And I, I agree with that. And that's a kill. If you're a fan that I agree with you, if you're a fan, why then would I want to pay money to watch your product or go to your product? Right. If you're not right. even going to right. give the implication that you're competing. I buy that yeah. for sure. So so six or seven, six or five, six or seven seeds making into the World Series. Well, yeah, not great for the business of the World Series and arguably not fair from a com- com- purely competitive standpoint. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to help put some pressure on those teams that are perceived as not even trying because like, well, Diamondbacks did it, you know, why, why not? Why can't you, you know? Yeah. At least if you're in the NBA, if you tank, like does you, you could sort of see who the prospect you might get in front of you. Baseball, it's just a little harder for the fans because nobody knows the prospects. You know, you're not in some Florida baseball academy, uh, like IDing who the next Bryce Harper is. And even then the first round picks just, it's tough to work. It's so much harder to work out for first round picks in baseball. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame too, because like the, the, it, for many fans, I think you both would agree with me, like the most interesting thing for many fans is the draft. Like, right, the combine, the draft. There are, so many fans are so into that. Uh, you know, I can tell you both from, from working at Sports Illustrated, the athletic draft content like is among the highest uh, viewed, subbed stuff that we do. So like there's a whole obviously um, industry, obviously it goes without saying, on this stuff. And baseball doesn't have that, which is, a, you know, you really got to be a hardcore to like read the you know the Keith Laws and some of the other stuff about like who the great prospects uh, are coming. I you know I think that'll get better and it has gotten better as the years have gone on. But they it's still tough. It's still tough because you, you know high school baseball isn't sort of on the air every day. All right, a couple more quick things here before I let you guys go. Austin, you know how many times we talk about Colorado on this podcast over the first we, couple we may weeks have discussed of, once or twice. Yeah, over the first couple of weeks of the college football season, and now you know. 
um, things have fallen back to earth. They're still obviously going to have a much better year than they had last year. But it's fascinating to me because, you know, not so long ago, we're talking about 9 million viewers for Colorado and how they're the reason or the biggest catalyst as to why college football exploded this year. And now they're, um, they're uh, I think they're four and five. Uh, having just lost to Oregon State. I don't know what the viewership is, although I guarantee their viewership is still higher um, than what would have been in the slot. But it does feel like, right, the last couple of weeks, that that story as a viewership story has cratered massively. Yeah, we were talking about Colorado, Colorado, Colorado State numbers that have drew four of the five World Series games. <laughs> right. so, yeah, pretty strong, pretty strong numbers to start for a school like that that had never appeared in any sort of discussions we had about, you know, best college football viewer numbers. Yeah. Um, losing will do that. And now a losing record will take them pretty much out of the conversation for a lot of those marquee windows, even with coach prime still there. Well, but we'll see how he improves. Uh, I do agree that it is kind of a process. You look at any new coach at any school, even with the number of transfers that he has, you know, in the first year, you don't know what to expect. So I think it was a very pleasant surprise at the beginning, I think they fooled a lot of schools and a lot of people then figured it out. Let's let's see if you can coach now. Let's see if you can continue to recruit, continue to be active in the portal. And I think Colorado can be a draw when it goes to the Big 12 because there will be some some good matchups there. But, uh, yeah, he's got to win. Colorado's a school that's got to win. It's not Penn State, plug and play, you're going to get a number whether or not they're 4-5 and five or 5-0. and oh. Yeah, my thought about this in terms of like as a viewership play is I think the – first couple of games next year, there'll be massive interest. I, I don't know if we're going to get 9.9 .9 interest but or 9.1 million interest, but there'll be major interest. Uh, I'm not sure there's going to be any major Colorado game coming up for a big viewership television play until the bowl game if they qualify for one, where again, I think they will. there will be more interest in them than a traditional, let's say, six-win team or seven-win team, whatever they end up being but um it just was very fascinating to me because like they were the college football viewership story of the year and now the story has switched to like the michigans and you know obviously the michigan ohio state game will be huge I, and but probably i think it was a rising tide a little bit i think it created yeah. some some interest around the sport um especially in the face of the start of of nfl football you, you weren't reliant on some of these uh, late matchups um, later on to really drive it, like Ohio State, Michigan, I'm sure will drive the numbers during yep. rivalry week and how Alabama, LSU were doing. And, you know, it's been so top-heavy with some of these great teams um, and just destroying people like Georgia that it was good. It was good to have something like Colorado to kind of mix up the conversation in terms of driving the numbers. I agree. And, I, you know, it really helped the networks that had them. Obviously, Fox invested big on them, and it really paid off for them. Uh, just so people know, the Ohio State-Michigan game, is November 25th at noon, given all the stuff going on with that, you know, absurd Michigan story and spying and denials. And it's like a bad comedy of errors there. Um, that will have a lot of juice because one, it always has juice as Ohio State, Michigan, but two, it has more juice, obviously, with this Connor Stallions uh, scandal. So that, that to me will be the most watched regular season uh, game of the year by far. And then the question will just be what the uh, what the final number is. All right, two more topics before I get out of here. Ben, I'm going back to you. Um, I'm fascinated by the NFL playing abroad. I think it's absolutely going to happen. You, you, you are probably among the foremost uh, experts in the country at this. So I'm, I'm talking in much more general. You can be more specific. I, I really, every time I've seen the NFL in Germany, it seems like that market is really into it. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know how NFL players would feel about being there. Um, I'm sure the league would love to be in a Germany or a London, any kind of major city. I know there's issues, obviously, when it would come to, you know, travel and how do you, you know, can a West Coast team go to Germany and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. You know, I think once upon a time, I thought like London may be the market for them. But I think my mind is now switched to Germany after I've seen the, re- I don't know if it's recency bias, but I don't know. It feels like that could be a great city for the NFL's first international expansion. How to, you know, I'm not really asking a question. I just want you to sort of rift off that. Yeah, no, first of all, you're right. It's not just recency bias. I think the NFL's general position is they have made it as far in two or three years in Germany as they have in 20 years, well, 15 to 20 years in the UK. Um, UK is an obvious place to start. There's no language barrier. It's culturally probably a bit closer to, to us. Um, and they're pl- perfectly pleased with that. But the Germans love American football in a way few other countries overseas do. Um, Oliver Lux got a great story. He's told me when he was the young commissioner of the World League, uh, walking through a parking lot in Frankfurt, wondering if this was going to work. And the Germans were out grilling sausages and drinking beer in the parking lot. And like that's behavior you don't see in the UK. But for one reason or another, maybe it's the long history of American military presence in Germany post-World War II, or just Germans like contact sports more than most Europeans do. Um, they are ready-made for American football. So I think you're going to see more and more um, in Germany. I think Germany and Mexico are the two countries that the NFL teams are most optimistic about. Um, and um, I think you're right that if you talk about franchises or expansion, I think London's hard to turn down just because it's got so many, uh, it's so big and there's ready-made stadiums there. Venues are a big challenge overseas in general, uh, but Germany's not far behind. Um, you know, I said at the start of the show that that international was going to be like the defining challenge of this next term for Goodell. And one of the reasons I love writing about it so much is that, first of all, it's, it turns the NFL on its head. You know, the NFL is a dominant force in the United States. They're a challenger brand everywhere else, including Germany and Mexico. So it's it's forcing them to do things differently and exercise different muscles than they're used to. So it's just interesting to watch. I think there is a, a potential gap, um, inconsistency between the executive business staff's interest in overseas and ownership's tolerance for risk. You know, I mean, if you're an MBA at headquarters in Park Avenue, think, why not? That's the next thing we do. We've almost literally wrung out as much money in the United States watching American football as we can. The obvious thing to do if you're at, you know, a business school or McKinsey would say, well, go do it in Europe. Owners of the team, your Jim Irsays of the world, you know, maybe less so. Maybe think, no, you know, I've got a great local asset. I'm going to leave it to my kids. Why are we risking any money to make it work abroad? So I think there's a tension there. It's interesting to watch. Yeah, Austin, let me ask you about the viewership angle of this. If, um, you know, and I, I should have mentioned Mexico City. Ben's absolutely right. Those, I think those, to me, are the three places, obviously, they're going to go, and the question will be where they go first. Let's just use Germany um, as the example here, although London would sort of present the same challenges. When it comes to a viewership play, there's either going to be 9.30-ish kind of start times, right? Or... I guess if you have a primetime game in a Germany-London market, then it's a little closer to the afternoon window in the U.S., depending on where you live. Regardless, the 
reality is, and I'm sure the NFL owners know this, you're gonna have you're gonna lose some viewership, right? Because if you have some of these great glamour teams playing against, let's just call it, you know, the uh the German Kings or the the the, the you know the uh the Frankfurt Lions or something like that, you can't get a primetime game because they're not playing at two in the morning locally. So that is one thing that if you do go to Europe, you know, you you will lose, I think, some viewership. But obviously, if you're the NFL, you get so many other things with that move that you're willing to lose a little bit of viewership. But as our viewership expert on this, how do you see that? Yeah, like I was I was talking about earlier, the best that they've done so far for that 930 NFL network window is around like five and a half million. But like you said, they've also folded some of those primetime Europe games into like the one o'clock Eastern regionalized or single header window on a Sunday afternoon. But then it kind of takes away from like, all right, this was a, this was a kind of a big event. You want eyes on this. You want people to kind of be paying attention to it. And it could also be, if you pull out five, six games from for a Sunday morning from Europe, that could be another package that they sell to a broadcaster, you know, especially if, you know, NFL network ends up continuing, which I think and bank can, can correct me in the sense if I'm wrong, continues to be on the block in the future. If that is an acquisition target. So is it something that they can do there? But no, if you're comparing it to any other NFL window, even like Amazon, it's like a third of what a good Amazon game is going to do on a Thursday night, these yeah. Sunday nine 30 windows. But you as you continue to grow in Europe, I think they, I, I totally agree with Ben I mean, when NFL Europe folded over a decade ago, five of the six teams were in Germany. And Ben talked about the huge military presence. I think there's still over like 20 bases there in Germany. So there is incredibly strong prospects in, in Germany and beyond. Do you, Austin, you have a guess? You want to take a guess as to what you think the um, this past Sunday's game uh, did between the Chiefs and Dolphins? Because the game itself was excellent. It was a really watchable yeah. game. I think, it was a, I think it's going to set a record again. I think it's going to get closer to 6 million viewers. An NFL network, it was like it was two great teams. The Chiefs have been lights out on TV. The Dolphins have been good. I think it's going to set another record. Yeah, I agree. I actually think you may be low. That's, that'll be my prediction on the number, but we will find out this number actually before it comes out, and uh, one of us can celebrate. The other can head to the corner and cry. All right, last one. Uh, I'll start with you, Ben, and then we'll finish with Austin. Uh, I want to just get your – I don't know how much you guys sort of were paying attention to this or you saw this. You know, Bobby Knight obviously passed away uh, a couple days ago, and I was pretty fascinated to pay attention to the coverage. And, you know, in some ways I was actually pleased because the people who I expected to sort of be um, hagiography and sort of over-the-top sort of night and not really talk about sort of his flaws did so but i did see a lot of i thought really sort of thoughtful measured pieces that discussed his obvious basketball genius as well as his um bullying and the reality is you're you you put these pieces out and there's always going to be a section of people especially if you put it on social media who sort of yell at you um you know i'm sure indiana alums etc but I, i was paying attention to this and i actually i don't know how much you sort of read but I found that I found enough pieces that sort of were what that where I thought were even uh, that were measured and sort of more fair and honest. But uh, uh, I don't again, I don't know if either of you in Austin paid attention to this, Ben, but if you did, I'd love to take your thoughts. Yeah, I don't think I would be able to hold, go very long talking about specific articles and deep dives on any given uh, obituary. But I think I, I very much agree with your your general review of the coverage. I, I thought the tenor of things was was pretty uh, pretty spot on. 
Um, I, I don't see how you possibly write an obituary of Bobby Knight, especially considering actually how his career ended. You know, these weren't like minor little things over the course of time. It became a dominating aspect of his entire existence, um, the bullying and sort of it's just the general abuse. Um, and in my sense of things, the, the obituaries as a whole more or less covered his greatness and his impact in the sport and, you know, the media world um, fairly uh, in a good balance with, with uh, the problematic aspects of it. Maybe you're right. I saw some of the criticism on social media. People were coming after the uh, Indiana Daily Student, or I'm sorry, I may not have the name of that paper right, but yeah, that's, that's where right. I think the big criticism I saw was from too. Yeah. And that was, you know, it's, it was absurd. Their obituary was absolutely fair and it called a man controversial. <laughs> Of course he was. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Actively denying reality to suggest that that's not a perfectly appropriate word for him. So yeah. I there's nothing controversial was. about calling Bobby Knight controversial. First, yeah. yeah. What about you, Austin? You know, so again, I will mention a couple. I, I would recommend uh, uh, John Feinstein, who wrote a piece for the Washington Post. Obviously, he wrote season on the brink. Seth Davis in the Athletic that really had a uh, an even-handed and smart. Uh, uh, review. Eamon Brennan wrote about sort of Bob Knight in relation to his dad. That was a very, very uh, memorable piece. Dan Wetzel, I thought, had a really good um, obit on him. I, I wish I, I, sh- I, you know, I don't have access to the Indiana papers. I would have liked to have read the, the Indianapolis Star and some others. But uh, Austin, as we get out of here, did you, do you have any final thoughts on this or any thoughts on this, I should say? I'm glad you brought that up to the Indy papers. I thought uh, Greg Doyle from Indy Star had a really good, just in his headline, talking about the reckoning of, of a legacy. And that's how a lot of people treated this. You know, a lot of what I read came from SBJ Daily's kind of roundup of national. Yeah, you guys did a great and, job. And, and stuff on X and other social media platforms. And I think Ben was right. Everyone kind of took this measured approach on his impact on the game of college basketball combined with, yeah, it, it, you have to call him controversial. I don't think there's any other way to describe the, the, the full legacy there. Yeah, I mean, listen, Bobby Knight was a bully. I mean, there's no way around it. Like, he was. He was not a good person to a lot of people, and he was an incredible person to a lot of people. That That's his legacy. You want to call that complicated? Fine. In some ways, it's not really that complicated. I mean, he sort of was what he was and was unapologetically so. Um, but again, like, I, one, good, one thing that I appreciated from this is that, you know, if you were willing to search, you could find um, – you could find some even-handed pieces, and that's, I don't know, to me that's really important, and, you know, Knight's an important, major important sports figure, but where you really want the stuff, obviously, is when it comes to, like, world leaders and stuff. That That's where you really have to sort of give those kind of, um, you know, sort of long-form kind of nuanced and thoughtful pieces. Hopefully people still care about that stuff. All right, is there anything else uh, you two would like to add or promote before we get out of here? Another NASCAR season in the books. Down oh, yeah, that's right. I also I apologize. You mentioned that to me. So go quick. So you wanted to mention uh, NASCAR is over another season. Yeah, I mean, it's a big sport with a media rights deal that isn't signed yet. It's just something that everybody who's paying attention to media probably wants an eye on. And they're down 5%, but it's like this is a cons- the Cup Series just over the course of a season, pretty consistent around 2.9 to 3.1 million viewers. These broadcasters, they're going to probably, probably re-up with them, know what they're getting. Know that's a season of consistency year in and year out. Yeah. Did you did you have anything to add, Ben, on NASCAR? Um, nothing on NASCAR, but I just noticed a talking point that I meant to slip into the Sunday ticket conversation earlier. Another thing the NFL has done to undermine the value of the Sunday afternoon Sunday ticket package 
I get red zone on NFL plus now. They're taking red zone direct to consumer. I'm watching red zone without even touching Sunday ticket. And that's new. And that's another example. Yeah. That list. That's good. I, and I will say, Austin, you are, you know, as someone who um, has covered, uh, I think I've covered eight races, eight NASCAR races. I got a great appreciation for that sport. It is consistent as hell when it comes to sort of inventory and product. I, I will say, and I think Austin, I, you would agree, the scoring system and playoff system is a little complicated for your average casual non-hardcore NASCAR fan. But every week there is something like very impressive about just like there's a race at a generally iconic track. It's going to draw pretty good. And it's fairly interesting if you're into this. And so and boil it down to what you just said, though, like going into the last race of the season, you had four drivers contending. Right. It was down to the final race. It's not like F1. I mean, Max Verstappen had this sewed up weeks ago. We haven't even gotten to the Vegas race yet, let alone some of the, 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 the championship race. So having, yeah, it's a complicated system, but I like what they did in having that last race of the season determine the champion. Uh, I think that's, I think it's a good system. Yeah, I think Max Verstappen is Dutch for Jimmy Johnson. Uh, you got to figure <laughs> out much. a way. Yeah, you got to figure out a way to get that more competitive, uh, which it was a couple of years ago with, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton. But uh, but yeah, hopefully that changed. All right. Uh, Austin Carp is the um, listen. He does it all when it comes to uh, sports business journal. You'd agree with that, right, Ben? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anything that's not someone's specific job description, Austin ends up doing it at SBJ. And I don't know if that's because he doesn't advocate for himself internally or is just that strong <laughs> and ambitious. Whatever it is, he's got a lot of important roles these days. All right. Well, that this would be a much more interesting podcast. I mean, than what the hell we just talked about. Austin Karp's uh, career development. All right. Senior managing editor uh, slash digital for Sports Business Journal. Ben Fisher covers the NFL for SBJ. Um, you will see him uh, at various... Uh, NFL games. If you happen to be listening to this from there, obviously he has. Uh... Ben, we'll have you back on before Vegas because I want to talk to you about that. I'm f- so fascinated by a Vegas Super Bowl because of all the things that it presents. Yeah, we didn't even touch that, but that's a good one. It'd be crazy. It presents so much interesting stuff for the uh, NFL. Not to mention the fact that, like, 15 years ago, like that seemed as likely as me marrying Selma Hayek. So, like, it's just hilarious to me that they've sort of embraced uh, all this. All right, Austin, Ben, thank you very much. Appreciate your time as always. And uh, everybody uh, check out their work uh, at the Always Excellent SBJ and as well as uh, their stuff on uh, Twitter slash X. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Austin and uh, Ben for their time and uh, insights. Great to get Ben on this podcast. Something I've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, if you like this stuff, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Do that on Apple or Google Play or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, previous podcast prior to this one, we uh, had Chad Finn and John Lewis for a uh, Sports Media Roundtable on uh, Sunday ticket issues and some other stuff. Amanda Gifford, Vice President of Production for ESPN, was on this podcast talking about her job. Really interesting one when it comes to putting all the college football games on at ESPN. John Shambi. The Voice of the World Series was on this podcast. Darce Burke uh, talking about her um, new gig, Dan Orlovsky and uh, Ian Eagle. And uh, again, you should find some people on the, the list in the archives that you'll uh, appreciate. You haven't caught them. I uh, want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on Sports Media Podcast.